Welcome to Geek Gab Game Night. I'm your host, Dornal. Hanging out with me tonight is the inimitable Daddy Warpig. Daddy Warpig, how are you doing tonight? Ah, uh, you know, same old, same old. I am working diligently on the thing that I've been diligently working on for a very, very long time, but, you know. It's very topical. It is gaming-related. We'll tell you more later. Can we complain about the thing that we were complaining about before the show? Because I think like, that would be funny. Would you, would you like to do that? The, the thing we were complaining about immediately before the show. Yes. It's all related, I promise. Tonight we're talking gaming, tonight specifically D&D, and tangentially related, we were just uh, uh, talking about uh, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, who's, who's an avid D&D player. Uh, he's actually doing some charity D&D games out here in Seattle. Uh, this week, tomorrow, in fact. Um, what were you just saying about about the the his book series? The Kingkiller Chronicles um, is in development by Lionsgate Studios. Lin Manuel Miranda, who's the guy who did the Hamilton Broadway play, of which you know our audience may have heard one or two people mention. I've never heard any music from it. I've never seen it, um, but apparently a lot of people really, really just dig it. Um, so, you know, more power to him. I'm not saying anything bad about it, but he's like the, he's going to be producing it and shepherding it. He, they're making a TV series, a prequel TV series. And then they're putting the, what they claim is the trilogy, uh, on the movies. And, and I, I really, really don't want to be, you know, that guy, but I just want to point out that technically speaking, it's not actually a trilogy yet. Oh, shots fired. It may at one point become a trilogy. And I've read both the previous books. I hope it does become a trilogy so we can, you know, finally read the whole story. But as of right now, it is not actually a trilogy. So I, I'm wondering if they're going to run into the same problem that... HBO did with George R.R. R. Martin. It could happen. Uh, I mean, at this point, it looks like George Martin is happy with the way it is. Hey, I don't have to write the book. <laughs> Show's doing just fine. Oh, by the way, the director that is currently uh, the director that's currently in talks to direct the movie is Sam Raimi. Really? Yeah. That is the I I love Sam Raimi, and that is the last guy I would pick to do the king killer chronicles is he's got he's got such an idiosyncratic style that i think like his most well-known movies either going to be the evil dead or if you're young spider-man but the most sam raimi movie ever made is dark man he was made to do cheesy comic book films yeah i, I don't know I mean, maybe Del Toro. Um, Peter Jackson would be the easy, easiest, obvious choice, but I don't know that Peter Jackson has it in him anymore. Um, but yeah, Sam Raimi. I'm not saying again. I'm not saying Sam Raimi is a bad director. I don't mean to to put him great. down, but He's a great director, legendary. Of course, it's it, <laughs> again. We were talking about this before the show began, so we're kind of uh, a little bit retreading the conversation, but. Um, 
it makes me wonder what the heck they're going to do for the second movie. Yeah, the second movie where it's 15 minutes of action and then 90 minutes of sex. I mean, what, what's what's the scriptwriter director going to do with that? I mean, just nothing happened. Nothing, literally. Like, tiny yeah, I don't know. Bit of travel in between the whole lot of nothing. Yeah, I mean, what would your gaming group say if, if, if like in in the uh, second book, The Wise Man's Fear, you, they went to visit this strange new culture, and and all they did was just sort of hang around and and have sex in this new culture and not really advance any sort of narrative or, or anything. It was just, eh, this is cool, isn't it? Read about this other, these other people. There's no, no action, no plot. I mean, I suppose. He's trying to set up why he's such a, a badass by pointing out that he came to this society of ninja chicks and is absolutely incredible at ninja-ing. Um, but I really think Penny Arcade kind of nailed the second movie hard, or second book really well. Um, you know, they just... It's exactly what you said. He sleeps with a bunch of chicks and 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 that's it. And 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 of course he he sleeps with the chicks. I mean, like like the that uh, you know the legendary fairy queen who's basically the goddess of sex. That's <laughs> like that. He loses his virginity to the goddess of sex. Uh, yeah. I just I I don't see how they're gonna do that movie. Or do that book justice as the second movie. I mean, I mean they're gonna have to. I mean they're gonna you have to take a, a chainsaw to that and just hack off limbs. It, it'd be like uh, yeah, like if you're gonna adapt uh, Lord of the Rings, you to a film to a feature film, you absolutely cut Tom Bombadil. Yes. They did it. Yeah, like there's stuff that's you know it's absolutely cool stuff in the in the book, but if you're gonna make make a film out of it, you've just you got to be ruthless, and you have to you have to go in with the trimmers and try and bring that down. They, they're yeah. There's I don't know what they're going to do with that. Well, and the thing is too is that you know take it around to role playing. You couldn't make a role playing game out of that setting right now because you have no idea where it's going, what actually happened. I mean, there's just so many questions that the third book has to answer that you just couldn't put it together. Like important questions, not small questions either, like big important questions. Like what's going on with this invasion of these of these strange creatures, of these demon things? And then um, what caused it? What exactly, you know, what king did he kill? How do the, um, you know, those deep, deep, super powerful guys from the dawn of time, how do they figure in to all this? What exactly is, is happening and so all of those questions have to be at least answered in order to make a role-playing game of it. And, you know, if you're making a movie of this series, you either have to pray that he's going to get done with the trilogy, assuming it, it will eventually become a trilogy, or you have to start making it all up yourself. And given what the second book is, they may have to start doing that anyway. Yeah, maybe. The only thing I'd say about it, RPG wise is that they have he has the beginnings of, of what could be an interesting 
magic system. They, they've got the system of sympathy, which is just sort of a background explanation for how uh, magic works in that world. Um, it may not it may not suit everyone's palate because, despite the existence of uh, of fairies and, and legends and, and and things like that, it's very uh, it it's very not unspiritual. It's it it's not like an an it's not like an endless force throughout the galaxy. It's not like the gods and goddesses. It's it's more like a science. Like if you can um, think in a certain way, if you can if you can arrange your mind in a certain way, then you can exert your will over the universe in a certain way. Right. Uh I think the best thing to do, if you're going to be adapting it for a role-playing game, the best thing to do would be to, um, instead of adapting that setting, would be to make a setting that's heavily inspired by it. Like, uh, do you remember Midnight? Oh, do I? I've got the book. Oh, almost within arm's reach. Midnight is a Midnight is a D and D three point five setting, and and the the. Do you want to explain it or should I? No, you, you explain it. Midnight's setting is inspired by the Lord of the Rings. Picture a world, picture a Middle Earth in which uh, Sauron won and the orc armies overran Middle Earth. That's the setting of Midnight. So you've got there's an oppressive government, hordes of orcs everywhere. Uh, your characters are going to be the uh, <laughs> the hashtag resistance of this world. You know, you, you have to you have to fight, you have to scrabble and 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 fight for survival in, in a world where the enemy army won and took over your homeland. So that's that's a good point. That's inspired by Tolkien, taken to its grimdark conclusion. Yeah, so I mean that's what you'd have to do to to make that into a role-playing game is just Take as much inspiration as you wanted to from the material and then go off and make it into an actual adventuring setting and not just like this, this the long backstory uh, of this guy. And again, I'm not saying the books are bad. I own uh, the books. Uh, in fact, we went to PAX when it was still PAX Prime, and uh, I got a copy of one of the books signed by Patrick Rothfuss. I stood in line for, you know watch his little presentation and then get the book signed. So I, I enjoyed the books, but it, they were definitely, the second one had, the more I get into pulp, the more I realize exactly how much modern writers need the pulp aesthetic. They need that high adventure, fast paced, keep the action rolling aesthetic so that they don't get dragged down into dreary, you know, character studies that are where nothing happens. The writing is interesting and the story is interesting because Rothfuss is such a good writer, but nothing happens in that story. And that's definitely not what you wanted to have for an adventuring role-playing game. Because an adventure role-playing game, you have to have things that happen and a places for them to happen. And there's enough cool places, enough potential things that could be happening that you could make a great role-playing game out of it. It's just, uh, you'd have to take that in a different direction, be inspired by it and not, you know, try to go get the license. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's but and, and the thing that you have to remember is that the the setting of the uh, name of the wind is actually just a generic fantasy setting it's got a wizard college it's got ancient evils it's got uh, gypsies it's got um ele elemental forces that are commanded by uh, magic words that cannot be comprehended by the waking mind, which, in my opinion, was was uh, the most uh, the most interesting thing about the the magic system. But it, it's a generic fantasy setting. Uh, Patrick, uh, Roth, I mean, Patrick Rothfuss even pointed it out himself on his blog. He's like he said another author uh, pointed out that I messed up and I I put the trope of stew. You know, the the heroes sit down and have a hearty stew in my fantasy story, and I went shoot. And you know it's true. <laughs> Every fantasy story has to have you go to the inn and have a hearty stew. Um, but yeah, so let's see. If I were to transition from making a role-playing game, oh, here we go. Here's how we transition. Um, it's very difficult if you are adapting something like that. And whether you are sticking in your own lore or you're putting in uh, lore, you know, inspired by the series, the books, you're going to end up with, in order to duplicate the setting at all, um, with any kind of fidelity at all, you're going to end up with a lot of lore. Um, just the magic system itself had a lot of, of complexities to it and how he was developing the arrow catching finger, uh, and so, what do you? We had a a, a prominent figure in the role playing game industry really getting upset by by lore recently, and he said some really kind of stupid things. Are Are you talking about the D and D designer? Yeah, Mike. Mike, Mike Merles. Mike Merles. We have to talk about Mike Merles. It's been a, It's been a week or two, so. It should have blown over by now, but I haven't. We haven't talked about it much, and we have to talk about it. Honestly, I haven't been paying much attention to Mike Merles because I. It... Well, this is the guy. Okay, matter. I know it doesn't matter. I mean, but this is the guy who, who's uh, like his his avatar on Twitter is the the dragon ampersand from Dungeons and Dragons, but it's rainbow colored, and this is the guy who apparently a few weeks ago said something about, you know, we're going to make sure that there's more uh, LGBT inclusivity in our products. Like, it, it, he's... I guess I'll start with the conclusion up front. If they've... There's lots of new stuff in D&D, &D and a lot of new people are really interested in in the hobby and, and, and everything. And if you like what's been going on in D&D, &D, like, if you like the direction it's gone, especially since 4th edition... Maybe he's gonna. Maybe they're gonna come out with more of the same. But but this guy, at least on his personal uh, Twitter account, is just your typical uh, virtue signaling sort of uh, guy. Uh, he's 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 trying to lord it over everybody who's, who's played the hobby for thirty years or more uh, by saying, "Ha, ah, we're in control now," and the re all of us who are who have played and just enjoy playing are scratching our heads, going, "What are you talking about?" Let me give you, here's the example. Um, he, he tweeted this on the, the 21st. 
With no context, by the way. I don't know the context of this. I, I have my I have my ideas, but this is without any context. This is just a tweet, not a reply. And I quote, funny how many of the same fans, fans are in scare quotes, funny how many of the same fans who insist on gatekeeping via rules complexity and lore density also have a problem with women in tabletop gaming. Hey guys, you're all fired from D&D. Find another game. End quote. Honestly, it sounds like he's talking about... They do this a lot. Um, they will make oblique references to people. Uh, sorry, SJWs do this a lot. They will make oblique references to people who um, who they don't name directly because they don't want to be challenged on their lies. So it sounds like he's talking about a specific person, but because he generalized it, it makes it seem like he's talking about any one of a number of vague, amorphous people. And I don't know who he's talking about. Uh, I have no idea who he's talking about because I don't, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to get into this exactly, but I haven't been following brouhaha's in role-playing games uh, as closely as I've been following the conflicts in, say, comics or uh, Magic the Gathering or whatever. I just, you don't have time to keep abreast of all the BS that's going on because it's, uh, somebody writing for National Review Online said this, that the left has won the culture war and now they're running around shooting all the survivors on the other side. Well, that's kind of true in one way in that they've managed to grab hold of a lot of our, you know, prominent cultural institutions and touchstones. Disney owns Marvel. Um, Disney owns Star Trek. Disney owns, of course, all the Disney properties. And they're lording it over the fans who've been fans for decades, you know, mocking people saying, we're in charge at Marvel Comics and we will run this exactly the way that we want to. So it doesn't surprise me that that's the attitude that Merle's takes with regards to D&D. But what they miss, and, and I'm glad they're missing it, I'm glad that they're either too arrogant or too ignorant to see what's going on, is that outside of their horizon of awareness, they may have won the culture war for modern American culture, but there is a parallel or an alternative culture being constructed outside of their view. And it's small, it's nascent, but it's growing. The people who are building it are... Uh, trying to draw in more creators and trying to practice and grow their audience and become better, become more canny, become better at using the tools like Kindle and Amazon and other things that our uh, the technology has now afforded us. And they're growing a culture outside of their point of view. So yeah, they're going around lording over how much they've taken over culture. But they are ruining culture. People are leaving it. And they're all they're doing is sowing the seeds for an alternative culture to come along and scoop up that audience. So if Merle's gets his way, if he gets his way and remakes Dungeons and Dragons in his image, remakes Dungeons and Dragons to get rid of 
all the dirty old fans that he loathes, all the grognards, all the people who love the original D&D, all the people who like rules and role-playing and don't care about politics and don't feel the need to have political representation quotas at their table. If he does what he wants to do and drives all those people off, all they're going to do is either keep on playing the same edition of D&D that they've been playing since 1975, since 1985, since, you know, 2005, and they're going, or they're going to turn to some of the new creators coming up because he doesn't have control over what other people do. He only has control of D&D, and then he only has the control that Hasbro gives him. And you make really good points. I think that it's the problems exacerbated in role-playing games. Uh, I've I've been hearing for a year now how social justice warriors or 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 these these entryist types are coming in and, and causing trouble in tabletop RPGs, and I never saw it because we're already fractured. We play the games that we like. People still play. First edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. People like Shadowrun. People like. There's actually a few people in the world who like Earth Dawn. Uh, that sort of thing. They, we play all sorts of games, all different games, and for a lot of people, they don't have to buy the newest product. Um, I I picked up Fourth Edition D and D. I wanted to see what it looked like. Played a couple of sessions. Put it down. That's it. Um, they're, I think in their heads, they're treating it like a, a video game. You know, the latest EA uh, edition of their NFL game, right? This isn't this isn't EA Sports 2018. If they put out a D&D product, yeah, they're going to get a lot of sales. But if they put out a product that people aren't interested in, that they're it's not like they're gonna they don't have other options. It's not like they can't just go play the D&D game that they enjoy playing. And, and you think they know that because that's what they did with Pathfinder. Yeah, they really screwed the pooch with Pathfinder. They they just they gave up that whole audience. And 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 that goes back actually let's talk about 3.5 and, and Pathfinder because Monty Cook was uh, probably the main guy for D&D 3rd edition and he went out and he remade D&D in his image. But what did he do? He tried to keep second edition. Uh, he, he tried to keep it second edition. He straightened out the rule set. He made everything clean and consistent. Like, yeah, I wonder if he's an engineer or was an engineer at some time in his life. You know, he just came through and straightened everything out, right? And for that reason, three D and D three is a really complex and crunchy, but you know, it's it's a game that you can follow. He didn't go about and trying to remake what D&D was in the same way that 4th edition was a, an interesting game that wasn't really Dungeons and Dragons compared to the previous game. Yeah, had it been had it been uh under some other system name, it might have been you know, not loathed and might have been able to find a healthy audience. I don't think it would have beaten D&D 3, but it could have found its own audience and not been the hated um, phenomenon it became. And and another thing is that 
I love that phrase. What was it? Horizon of awareness. Yes. We're all in a little corner of the internet. Um, even even our show only gets a few hundred views and everything. I mean, who's he who's he talking to? He's not talking to people who are gonna buy the product or play the game. He's talking to his friends online. He's he's showing off for everybody online and and rubbing it in everybody's faces who might care or or, or might might not like the direction the game has gone. Maybe they have maybe they have serious complaints about the design of D&D 5th edition. And and it's just pure future, virtue signaling. That's all it's doing. Yeah, you can't uh, uh, as the people in the chat are correctly pointing out especially since Ryan Dancy. And I, I, people are mad at Ryan Dancy. A lot of old school D&D people got mad at Ryan Dancy because he was the person behind the open source license for D&D. They got really, really mad because they thought that the glut of products that came out for third edition or 3.5 was awful. It allowed so much crap to come in. And it's also kind of based on resentment of the game mechanics changes in 3.5. Um, but... What Ryan Dancy did for D&D that will be the savior of D&D is that he made the OSR possible, the old school renaissance possible. He made it so that no corporation, not Hasbro, not Microsoft, not Wizards of the Coast, nobody could own D&D anymore. Nobody could control D&D because as soon as they start gripping, as soon as they start you know, grasping for control, Everybody flees to whatever their favorite open source version is. And Ryan Dancy did that, and it was very forward-looking. And whatever you say about 3.0 and however much you think it screwed up D&D, the fact that it was open source and it released the core of the game under an open source license is what saved D&D from 4.0. If you didn't have Pathfinder, D&D 4.0 would have been destroyed the same way it was, maybe even more, and you wouldn't have had people buying product in the industry anymore. They would have gone back to 3.5. They would have gone back to 2.0. They would have gone back to first edition. They would have gone back to old D&D, and then the industry would have, have happened to it. Role-playing would have happened to it, what has been happening to the comics industry with Marvel going downhill. If Dungeons and Dragons flatlines and people aren't buying, buying it anymore, then the industry, not role-playing itself, not the hobby, but the industry, the companies who make stuff, well, everybody takes a hit. Uh, yeah. I, Ryan Dancy... Ryan Dancy's on my list. He canceled my game twice. But... Uh, but uh, that's all. That's all the ill I speak of him because of the OGL. I uh, I I love a collectible card game called Vampire: The Eternal Struggle, and was originally printed as a Jihad, and it's based on the Vampire: The Masquerade role-playing game. It's a uh, it's a uh, it's an interesting game. It was created by uh, the person who made Magic, uh, who uh, Richard Garfield made it as his second game. And he did a couple of things with it that were interesting. I won't get into too much detail, but the two main things were uh, land was boring and a magic was not made for multiplayer. So he made a multiplayer game that used uh, your life counters as resources instead of 
boring land cards. Uh, it's a great game. It's a fun game. But uh, Dancy killed it at Wizards of the Coast. And White Wolf Studios reversed the licensing agreement, and they brought the game back in, I want to say, 1998. And they printed it for like another 10 years, 12 years. And then after White Wolf Studios uh, went out of business, they were bought up by CCP in uh, Sweden, I think. No, Iceland. Iceland. White Wolf is now owned by uh, a Swedish company. Anyway, Dancy was working for CCP, and he canceled it again. So he's <laughs> on my list. Uh, so, very sad. Uh, so he's he's got a lot of lot of a uh, lot of check marks in in the good guy column, a lot of check marks in in the bad guy column. But yeah, you're absolutely right about the uh, the OGL. It, it was for D and D. Ultimately, was it was going to happen anyway? Hey, what do you, you want to? What are you going to do if you want to get old books that are out of print anymore? You find them on eBay, or you find a PDF where someone scanned them in, right? It's it was going to happen anyway. So he made it official right there on the web. Write your own material, make money off of it. We don't care. It's great. OGL is a fantastic idea. Um, here's the question though, about why. Um. I mean, I agree that the OGL is great, and and I love that the OSR came out of that. Uh, and I think that a lot of the ideas, even if I don't like the specific mechanics of a class-based system, I think that a lot of the concepts and insights that were lost over the years are really, really great concepts that I don't understand why exactly they were lost. Um, and looking at them, they're concepts that really make the game so much better the fact that they've been lost is what i've been thinking about all the things that bore me about most DD campaigns and the things that bore me about most DD campaigns are a direct consequence of a couple of key game mechanics that just kind of fell out of the system for reasons i don't understand i don't understand why you wouldn't want to use these mechanics as often as you could or in their correct place uh, yeah, that that was the most beautiful segue I've ever heard. What mechanics are we talking about, Daddy Warpig? Specifically, um, we're talking about reaction rolls and morale checks. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about those. Sh shall we define them for the audience? Yes, please. Fantastic. So I've got my handy dandy copy of Moldvay Basic D and D. The, uh, the Red Book from the Red Box, I believe. And it's all about monster encounters. Because as you're, as you're playing... Did you, did you want to say something? No. I, uh, all right. I was uh, as some water. That's, that's all I oh, <laughs> as you're uh, As you're exploring the dungeon, or non-dungeon, if you're playing not Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you're going to encounter monsters. NPCs or, or, or otherwise. And... At the beginning of the encounter, uh, you know, when the dungeon master determines that you are encountering another, uh, uh, you know, a group of monsters, one of the first things uh, that the DM is going to do is uh, determine how the monsters react to you. Because this this isn't a video game. D&D &D is real life. Did you know that, Daddy Warpig? D&D &D is real life. 
So the idea is that figure out if anybody's surprised and figure out what their reaction is, because it's possible that you may encounter a group of monsters uh, who are not immediately hostile. It, it may be, it may be that they're open to talking or being bribed, or maybe they want to make friends. Why would yeah, they want to make friends? Yeah, okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Why they might want to make friends, but the basic mechanic is, if it's not obvious how they would react, um, then just use a table. You know, roll a couple of dice, check the total, check it against a reaction table. You know, the the one printed in the original book ranges from immediate attack to uncertain, all the way to enthusiastic friendship. That's it. You know, it, it's just another tool for the for the dungeon master to determine how they uh, how they react. It, and here's the thing. This is what bores me about D and D. Is you're walking along, you run across a monster, everybody rolls for initiative, and then you fight till it's dead, and then you do that again and again and again and again. Other than tactical questions, who attacks first? Where we position ourselves during the attack? What uh, you know, spells or magic items do we use? So on and so forth. Other than tactical considerations, there is no problem solving, or um, there is no challenge to that there's no role playing in that kind of setup and that is and has been since i started playing dnd so for 30 years or 25 years that's been the default dnd you run into monsters you roll initiative you start trying to kill each other until the last person is dead then you get xp for you know the monsters that you've killed and that's it I love that you pointed out the tactical thing. So it's no coincidence that the recent Dungeons & Dragons games, uh, starting with 3rd edition, and to be fair, probably 2nd edition, they're, they become more and more tactical. It's all about how your character can affect the monsters or the battlefield. There's no coincidence at all. But what 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 good is that, Daddy Warpig? What good is the reaction table? Don't you just want to kill the monsters anyway? The reaction table gives you an opportunity to avoid the conflict, negotiate the conflict, or make friends with a group of things and then betray them, or <laughs> <you> know, all <laughs> and, kinds of things that are other role playing options are opened up if you have a reaction table. And and here's my favorite part because I hope that we've got listeners. Who are used to the new superhero style of video games who want to know what's what this sort of thing is about because they're probably wondering right now what's the point of that what, what's the point of mechanically determining what happens that's because uh, the reaction something like a reaction table or in this case the reaction table gives you somewhere to start because if i uh, if the party encounters a group of monsters and the DM decides to use the reaction table, and and they roll enthusiastic friendship, then it is up to the DM, or in some cases the players, to figure out why. 
It's it's like the the wandering monster table. We should talk about that too. I don't think that was on the menu, but we should talk about that too. You well, know, I mean, here's, here's an example. You roll a, a, a reaction roll, and it's complete disinterest. And you say, okay, this is a big beast. This is a mindless creature who's generally inimical and known for eating humans. Why does it not want to attack the party? Why is it just uninterested? Well, the DM thinks to himself, it's just had a big meal. It's had a big meal. It's stuffed. It's just trying to get back to its cave so it can... Um, you know, sleep off the meal and digest it. And so that sets up all kinds of interesting options. If the players can deduce that, if they can figure it out, well, then they can just avoid the thing, let it go on its own way, and then trail it back to its cavern and steal the treasure without having to, you know, fight the thing. There are all kinds of options it opens up. And that's just from one interpretation of a dice roll. And, and, I know a lot of people really disliked Oriental Adventures, and I'm, I'm not saying that you couldn't learn this principle elsewhere, but the thing I love about Oriental Adventures, the old first edition AD&D book, is that they had the Game Master roll significant yearly events or monthly events or weekly events in the kingdom, and then they gave you advice on how to take the results of that random roll and how to create a uh, intelligible story from it or a sequence of events that makes sense that the players can interfere in. Like, you know, you have uh, a bad harvest. That's the one rule. Harsh winter, bad harvest. And then the next rule is um, city gets uh, attacked by something. And then the next rule is, um, you know, a lot of people start getting sick. And so as a game master, you have to look at those three roles and say, okay, what happened to make this intelligible? What is the sequence of events that I can see? Okay, well, there was a bad harvest and a lot of the outlying um, poorer farmers banded together to try and get the food because they felt like the nobles were hoarding the food. And so they attack uh, a noble city and get involved in fighting. And because there's a bunch of fighting, um, the water from this, uh, the water downstream of this city gets fouled with dead bodies and all kinds of stuff. And that starts a, um, that starts a disease uh, problem that begins to spread through the kingdom. So now you know, okay, so for the next year, you have winter come, you have people starving, you have bandits starting to raid, and you have this massive battle at the city, and then you have a plague that spreads out from it. And the progression makes sense, and it gives all kinds of options for players. And I just made those up. I just made up those events and then made up a story just right here on the air. So you as a game master, you can do that. And that's what Oriental Pro Adventures taught me. That's one of the things I've learned from Oriental Adventures. And when it comes to reaction checks when it comes to morale checks and when it comes to wandering monster checks that's the opportunity it gives you as a game master to create the reason why this random dice roll happened to explain it in game and then to use that explanation to build the adventure around absolutely uh the same thing happens the first time you use the wandering monster table too you, you just 
you all of a sudden something happens, then you go, oh, I need to extrapolate from this. What, why this would happen, what would happen, and as long as it makes some sort of sense, you've created a, a story, you've created a game world right there. You don't have to, it, it's not about writing a cool narrative ahead of time. Yeah. So that, that's why I love the reaction check, and I wish D&D had it, is because it makes encounters much more interesting than just, oh, it's another fight to the death. I mean, and I've seen people making jokes about this for years that never seem that, that they seem to be bored by it, but none of them had an idea how to change it. It's like, okay, well, I mean, this is literally a joke that, that some friends of mine who I played D&D with in the early 90s said, you know, in D&D, you line up in a big line and the monsters line up in a big line, and then you keep on hitting at each other until one falls and then you go on to the next one. And I'm like, yeah, it's that boring. So, and I hadn't gotten to this point then, but the obvious next step is, okay, what can you do about it? What do you do about it? Is there something you can do about it? And, and I'm not saying it's the only thing you can do, but reaction checks are definitely one thing you can do because they give the players all kinds of options. The players know. If you're a smart DM, the players know that every single thing they encounter might not immediately jump to attack them and fight to the death. And so they automatically alter their behavior. Plus, it makes charisma valuable. Absolutely. Uh, I've been playing a game in D&D 5th edition and trying to play it as an old school game. And without the built-in reaction check, uh, I noticed two things. That they there is a reason why Charisma became a dump stat in 2nd edition and later. And they had to come up with a use for it by making it a valuable prime requisite for certain classes. Uh, because it no longer serves a game purpose. And the other thing was that I, as the DM, was doing... A reaction table in my head. I was every time an encounter would happen, I was thinking, "What are the reasonable reactions? Like, what's the reasonable range of reactions for this situation?" And when it wasn't specified in whatever map or module I was stealing at that time, I'd be making it up. And guess what? If you've got a table that handles that procedurally, while also giving you the freedom to be creative. On the implementation, the you know the hows, you just saved yourself brain cycles at the table that are better used coming up with fun, creative explanations, uh, responding to questions at the table, or or maybe just rolling dice behind your screen to make everybody nervous. Um, yeah, there is no core function of charisma without a reaction table, and you don't just use it with monsters. You also use it with shopkeepers, right? How does a shopkeeper react to you? Is he friendly? Is he unfriendly? Does he tell you to get the hell out of his shop? Whatever. You use it when you're meeting with the king of the land or the lord of the castle. You're, you're wandering through the night. Um, you know there is a keep nearby that they might put you up. So you get to that keep, and then the DM makes a reaction roll. He makes a reaction roll for the soldiers at the door, the guardsmen. Are they going to listen to you or are they going to turn you out? Are they going to bring you in? 
and he makes a reaction roll for the castellan of the keep, whether or not he's going to present you to his master. He makes a reaction roll for the master, uh, unless there's some other reason why he, you know, has to determine that, but that gives him a guide, that gives him a place to start from to say, yes, you can get, uh, spend the night here, or yes, you can spend the night here, but he expects you to do something for him or spend money, or they're going to turn you out, uh, or they clamp you in chains and they're going to sell you for slaves. You know, it gives you that opportunity, which immediately presents options for players it immediately presents you with opportunities for role-playing, opportunities for acting in the world. And it makes every encounter different because you have no idea. If you encounter three different bands of orcs, you have no idea what this specific band of orcs is going to do. It makes it interesting because now you have to judge the situation. You have to think about the situation and there's a danger there. If you attack, you're, you're going to turn guys who might've been friendly to you against you. But then again, if you don't attack, maybe they ambush you. Yep. Uh, side note about charisma. Bradford Walker reminds us in the chat. Charisma is also used for hirelings and henchmen. Yes. Not, not, not really only tangential to the topic, but that's another thing that, was cut out of later divisions and and that's a decision that that i don't think that should be a controversial decision as as cool as that is to hire people to help out with things uh it's a little more fun when it's it's more about your personal character but that's just a different flavor of dnd what do you think about that you've never been a hireling kind of guy um i'm playing a dnd campaign where I actually hired somebody um, to be a schlepper and a torchbearer. He hauls stuff around because it's too heavy for my character to haul the stuff I need. And he also carries a torch, so I don't have to in, in battle. And I gave him armor. I bought him armor. I keep him out of the way, keep him safe. But that's what he's there to do is to carry the heavy stuff and to bring the torch. And he's very, very useful. Wow. So that in, you, you've uh, implied another rule that nobody plays with, encumbrance. Yes, we're, we track encumbrance in the game. And it is kind of annoying. It really is. It's kind of bookkeeping. But at the same time, it has a lot of effects on the game that are pretty necessary. So the other thing that goes along with... Uh, with the reaction table that we wanted to talk about. If if the encounter goes bad and you end up in a fight, there's one thing that doesn't, I don't think is, has happened since third edition that you check at the beginning of every uh, round of combat is morale. Yes. How do you determine when the monsters run? Because I know how to determine when the players are going to run. It's never. <laughs> uh, unless they're obviously outmatched. Uh, and then the only ones who don't run are the ones who are confused that the DM presented them with a monster that they could not defeat. So a morale check, as implied, is a check that each monster makes at the beginning of the round in certain situations to determine whether they should flee. The uh, 
the book rule in, in ye old book, uh, uh, a monster needs to check if someone on their side died in combat or if half of their group have been incapacitated, like if you knock them all out with a sleep spell. Then you need to check. So you don't check, you don't have to check every round, but you check to see if you check every round if you get my drift. And if they fail the check, then they run. And if they make the check, they stand. I've had to use my own morale check. I just do a 50-50 roll whenever a similar situation happens in my games. And uh, it's great for a couple of reasons. For me, I, it generates uh, it, it generates a little more realism in in the game where they're not just experienced nodes waiting to get slaughtered. Uh, that they actually act like rational creatures, which is very important when you're doing gnolls and goblins and orcs and things. Uh, you know, you're they're monsters. They're evil. Uh, they by definition they are not particularly virtuous they're cowardly it makes sense that you know one of his one of his teammates is going to get ganked and then they're going to decide it's not worth it and they're going to run and there's the usual adjustments to morale and and uh and it also if players know morale is going to be a factor and if you you have a system that distinguishes different classes of soldiers all the way from green and shaky you know basically a farmer who was given a spear and and stuck in a line all the way up to the elite guard of the uh you know empire uh that stretches across a million miles obviously i'm being sarcastic there but there are people who will fight to the absolute death that are fanatics and you want to approach that situation differently than if you were facing a squad of, you know, 10 to 15-year-old boys who have been given spears or slings and sent out to hold the flank of an army. If you're facing people who are really, really shaky, then doing something to scare them might drive them away before you've even had to fight. Setting a fire, you know, screaming at them, throwing uh, um, some of those um, explosive what-have-yous from 3rd edition uh, alchemists. You can scare them and drive them away, and then you've defeated that encounter without having to do anything. Kind of tough if they're going to stick to it, you might be more inclined to negotiate because you know that they're not going to break easily and it's going to be a slog and it's going to be, there's a good chance that you'll get killed. Um, I'm, I'm assuming for, for the sake of argument, these are monsters or creatures or whatever that are about comparable level to you in power. Um, and you know, if they're absolute fanatics that they will fight the last, and so you better bring your A game in, term of in terms of tactics, and for the love of crying out loud, make sure to ambush them so you can kill as many as you can before they get a chance to, to attack back. Knowing that there is such a thing as morale, and knowing that creatures are going to break off, 
means you adjust your tactics immediately. It provides the players with problems to solve, with approaches to master, with things to try that every fight being a fight to the death doesn't give them. Plus, it, it, is, it makes fights not last as long as they do which means they're tedious and you can bring the fight to a quicker conclusion other than just killing. You can do things to bring the fight to a quicker conclusion because long drawn out bats to the death get really, really tedious and they last a long time. But fights where you can be clever, fights where you can be scary, fights where you can try different things that the enemy hasn't, you can bring those to a uh, close quicker and the combats go quicker and you can get on with doing other things because I have a trouble. I have a lot of trouble with D&D games that the only interesting part of the game is the combat and the combat itself because of no reaction check and no morale checks isn't that interesting. That's a terrible game, awful game to be in. And game masters, if just with the introduction of reaction checks and morale checks, immediately are forced uh, or prodded to do things that make the game more interesting. And it is the effects that those two rules have are so pervasive and are so positive that I, I am befuddled as to why people didn't use them, why nobody noticed those rules and used those rules, and why they dropped out of D&D entirely. And I don't know of any, at least the major systems I've played, don't really have those kinds of rules. GURPS might. I can't make a definitive statement because GURPS has so many rules that I don't know all of them. I'm not a GURPS player. So GURPS might have it. I don't want to talk smack about GURPS. But I don't remember rules like that being in Shadowrun, unless I just missed them. Maybe someone in the chat can set me straight. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any similar rules in Shadowrun. But I know why the rules were dropped. And, and I'll get to that in a second, but I really want to talk about morale a little bit more. Because because I hope we've got some new people listening in who are wondering about morale and, and the implications of monsters running away when things go bad. I've got a player in my regular group who uh, says, oh, it's too bad that monsters run away all the time. It's kind of frustrating that we can't always catch them and run them down and everything like that. But what's happened over the course of the past couple of months of playing is that there is a monster rogue who has gotten away from them several times. And he, he now patrols a dangerous part of the dungeon. And every time he shows up, either if they're near his lair or if he's on a wandering monster quest, he joins the battle. And he always joins the battle from the shadows. And he always comes in and he sneaks sneak attacks the shit out of the ranger or the mage. <laughs> I, and he gets away. <laughs> and I, I threw morale rules and and having monsters act vaguely rationally we've generated a villain they hate this guy they want to go after him they want him dead they don't know where he lives uh, and 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 they haven't been able to catch him 
He's he's always been just out of range or just out of sight, uh, so that they can't lock him down with a spell or something. Uh, they're probably going to get him in the next session or two if they go after him. But it's a great unintended emergent consequence of morale checks, of having your monsters run. They're not all experience point nodes waiting to get bopped by the players. Which leads me, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up with my conclusion here in a second. Uh, leads me to the the ultimate rule that was changed. That's the reason for all of this steady war pig. Can you guess what it is? No, I've been reading the chat, so I know what you're going to mention, but go for it. All right, all right. There is one rule in the original D&D that, that makes all of these other rules make sense, because without it, you can drop them all. And that is, characters are awarded an experience point for each gold piece collected. I mean, we could really talk mo a large part of a show about why that rule works. It is a wonderful rule. In fact, Daddy Warpig, we are not time boxed on this, so th this is it. This is what we've been leading up to. Let's talk about gold pieces to XP. It's n monsters are not the source of XP. Monsters are the source of treasure, and treasure is the source of XP. And it's very valuable, not only for XP, but in old-school-style games, you also have to pay money to level up. In a new type of D&D game, your goal is personal power. I want to level up. Because, I don't know, I want to be the most powerful sorcerer in the land. Or, you're, you know, typical fantasy narrative game. There's a great evil in the land, and we're going to, you know, we're going to fight against it. We're going to, you know, fight against the evil, and when we get high enough level... We're going to take down the, the big bad. Perfectly reasonable motivation. Fun games. But original D&D, it was about scrapping for treasure. Maybe you're a, a cleric who wants to build a grand temple to the glory of his god and, and start his own following of, of people. You need funds for that. Now, a fighter wants to build a castle and uh, you know rule over his own... Uh, he wants his own duchy or something. That sort of thing. You know, treasure is the way to get experience points. It's the way to get what each character wants. And we were talking about this because, again, the reason why we scheduled this show is because we got involved in a conversation about these specific rules. Um, and then I, you know, halfway through the conversation or three-fourths of the way through, I said, well, we should do a show on these, you know, to talk about them. But we did talk about XP for gold. Um and the, the point I tried to make, um, why I think the rule works, is because the assumption is, as a game master, the difficulty that you have to go through to earn the gold, the challenge you have to go to overcome to earn the gold, is commensurate with the value of the gold you get. So the assumption is, in general, as a general rule, not every single time, but as a general rule, if an encounter is tough to get through, it's probably because it's a very difficult monster who has a lot of treasure. If it's easy, it's probably because it's a very easy monster that has a very little treasure. So you are 
rewarded in in direct proportion to how difficult it is to go through that encounter to defeat that monster. But, and this is the key, this is the important part, you don't adjust the XP reward based on how difficult it was at this point for the players. If they came up with clever ideas, and because those clever ideas, they the encounter, this particular encounter, just happened to be pretty easy for them, you don't give them less treasure, you don't give them less XP because they've done what they're supposed to be doing, which is thinking their way out of the problem. That's perfect. That's absolutely right. You've stunned me into silence. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's your reward. It's this. This really happened in the D and D game I'm playing in right now. Um, I'm playing a thief. We're playing using fifth edition rules, which I've never played before, so I don't know anything about fifth edition. But I knew I wanted to focus on one of the things I wanted to focus on was was trap stuff and also stealth. So I did everything I could to max out my stealth. Um, my character is a tomb raider, a tomb robber. Um, they go in, they get rare archaeological treasures, and they sell them, and that's how they make their living. So they sneak, they defeat traps, they figure out what's going on, take what they need, and go. So obviously they have, you know, knowledge arcana or whatever, so they can tell what this stuff is. Knowledge history, so they know what the lore is and where to find places like this, whatever. But this is the challenge we had. There was one particular gnome who was causing a lot of ruckus in the area who had a 10,000 gold piece bounty on their heads. Um, now, I should know our game master is not using GP for XP, so... Um, that wasn't a consideration, but the fact is we needed money bad. So we come up, they've got a group of allies who are an entire orc tribe who is camped out in this big valley. And there's four of us and like 150 orcs. And so we're all staring around at this, wondering how we're going to get in and get to this gnome and get out without getting killed, without getting stomped. So I turned to everybody else. I dropped my pack. Uh, I dropped my extra gear and said, I'm sneaking in. Um, probably at some point I'll get in trouble. If I get in trouble, then rush in and, and get me out. But if I don't get in trouble, I'm just going to go in, kill the gnome, and get out. So I expected there to be some kind of problem. But there wasn't. I just got lucky that all of the uh, perception checks the orcs made were so low, they couldn't beat my stealth. I snuck in, I killed the gnome, I left, taking their backpacking gear with whatever treasure they had, and we went back to the city, and we turned in our bounty. <laughs> and the game master was just floored absolutely flabbergasted because like me he expected that whole thing to start to go sideways at some point but it didn't like the legendary shadow run mission that actually goes off as planned 
Yes. Never yeah. happened before. But that's the thing. And, and, and the reason I, I say that story is not to bore people with tales of our campaign or to brag about it. It is an example of where um, we did something different just because we wanted to get around this obstacle rather than going through it. Lateral thinking. And that's what gold pieces, uh, earning XP for gold pieces, that's one of the things that encourages is lateral thinking. Because you just want to get the treasure and leave. You don't want to necessarily play um, metal sword patty cake with a monster for the next two hours of playtime. Yeah, I, I, I've got a couple of examples that illustrate a couple of different points similar to that. The first one is a pickup game of Pathfinder I played where it was a very simple module because uh, the Pathfinder Society is sort of like playing, looking for group in World of Warcraft. Really simple, easy scenarios, some fights, and, and it's over. And the, the end boss, so to speak, was some undead sorcerer. And one of the players was playing a grapple monk. And this is a, a Pathfinder, so it's basically D&D 3rd Edition. And uh, as soon as we spot the guy, the monk runs up and grapples the sorcerer. End of module. Yeah. In a, in a game where you're there to grab the treasure, everybody cheers. In a game where you're just hanging around with some friends and going to slaughter some monsters and finish the, the scenario, when you get to the big boss and he gets one shot by a grapple, Unable to gas spells. That's really boring and anticlimactic. It's the opposite of what you experienced when you successfully assassinated the gnome. So, in that sense, changing changing the goal of the game changes what's enjoyable about the game. Where, in that scenario, a 4th or 5th edition style tactical slog where you had to wisely use the terrain to avoid the sorcerer's spells so that you could close in on him and beat him up. That would have been more interesting, right, than the monk grapples him. Another thing that happened... Uh, do you have a comment first? No. Uh, another... Uh, I've got a couple of examples from the game that I run uh, that illustrate the effects of these motivations is when I really understood the gold piece rule. The uh, adventurers had cleared a lot of the dungeon, and there was a room full of gems, uh, statues that had gems in them, like in the eyes and, and so on. And the, it was a very difficult guardian. It was so difficult, the only way they could defeat it was to <laughs> kite it out of the dungeon and then thunderbolt it to death. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That we needed We needed a call lightning spell. He, anyway, it was great. The point being is that they cleared that room's guardian, and then that was the end of the night. And they didn't go back to that room for months. There's like a month later, we're talking online in our chat room uh, in Skype, and they're talking about what they want to do that session. And uh, and someone points out, you know, hey, we can go to the we can go to that room with the statues and, and get the gems. And, and most of the other people are like, no, no, we want to go to the palace. We want to fight the nulls. We want to... And everything like that. And that's when it hit me. There's 
an empty room free of guardians, minus anybody who might have moved in in the intervening weeks, full of treasure with zero risk, right? Zero risk, treasure's waiting there, just you've already woken the guardian and destroyed it, you might as well go in and get your treasure. They didn't care because that, that was, it wasn't a reward. In 5th edition, there's nothing to spend your money on. Uh, experience is gained by defeating monsters. They wanted to go where they could risk their lives, and and they wanted to raid the home of, of all the, the Nulls and the Minotaurs. They'd rather do that than get free money. As soon as I realized that, at the beginning of that next session, I said, okay, everybody, from now until the end of the campaign, I'm awarding 1 XP per GP. Guess what they did that night? <laughs> they looted those statues. That's what. That's when I really, truly understood why that rule existed. And as soon as you light up that that light, it lights up all the other rules. Where you go, oh, that's why we don't do encumbrance anymore. That's why we don't bother with morale anymore. That's why we don't bother with reaction rules and charisma anymore. Uh, it's because the goal of the game changed the the motivation for the players and the characters changed oh because if monsters run away and they're your xp players get mad because they've just been cheated out of xp and and a good dungeon master will award full xp for for the encounter even if some of the monsters ran but it still makes them want to go to where the monsters are instead of go to where the treasure is. And and after spending... And believe me, uh, my players had complained about not getting enough treasure for like a year and a half because in the upper levels of the dungeon, they have been cleaned out a few times. There's not a lot of treasure there. That when they finally worked their way and they earned their way deeper into the dungeon and they finally got to the treasure, they didn't want it. So 5th edition doesn't have stuff you spend treasure on? Not as such. Uh, you know, training costing money is just listed as an optional rule. Uh, they don't have a, a complicated, or I should say complex, magic item economy the same way 3rd edition did. Uh, so gold... And of course, players become... Uh, just, Ever since third edition, players player characters become gods unto themselves at level twenty. Um, so there's no long term financial planning or goals, right? You it's just like it's just like all D and D games since third edition, where uh, the only thing that matters is your character's personal power. And so no, there isn't anything to spend your money on. Uh, I I mean, there are optional rules about if you wanted to build a building and so on and so forth, but if memory serves me, those are presented as primary things you could do in AD&D. You say, you know what, a fighter at level 7 or 9 or whatever gets leadership, they can recruit followers, and they're allowed to build a stronghold. And you go, oh, that's what that's what a fighter does. He He proves himself in battle and earns a bunch of money, and and then he becomes a leader of men. He'll he'll build his own castle, or, or oh, I'm sorry, Mike Merles. She'll build her own castle and 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 become a leader of men and women. 
And that sort of that sort of thing was taken away in later games. And I've said this a bunch of times on the show. I think it's the influence of video games. I think it's the it's the the circular influence now where video games influence the role playing games that originally influenced the video games. And what's the best thing about playing uh, RPGs? It's powering up your characters and you know becoming little demigods, smashing the bosses. You can easily solve that problem in 5th edition, but I hope someone listens who is dealing with that right now and realizes, oh, that's something I could put into my game, that I can encourage my players to sort of think about the future, not not what stat they're going to increase at next level or what spells they're going to pick out, but, uh, you know, what's my character doing this for? What can I, you know, wh- wh- why am I doing all these missions? Why am I raiding all these castles? And once you do that, all these other rules come online. That's my conclusion. So the reason why reaction rolls and morale checks got dropped is because of the... They also dropped the GP as XP rule. Was that your thesis? That was it. That was it. I, I believe that the shift in the in the purpose of the game, the motivation for the players and the player characters changed. And as a result, those rules weren't necessary or useful. If you don't care about how much gold you make it back to town with, encumbrance stops being interesting. Morale checks... Morale checks are are slightly different. I think morale checks belong no matter what your... Morale checks just make for a better game. But uh, reaction tables, charisma checks actually wanting to use stealth for something besides getting a surprise round. Uh, That sort of thing. Uh, Character ideas and builds and spells that don't involve min-maxing your tactical effectiveness on the battlefield. Which is why you lost all those rules about you know, encounters and and, inter- and non-combat interactions, and you gained all this, you know, interesting sort of crunchy tactical games that you get in Pathfinder and 4th edition and 5th edition. Uh, because that's what the game became. That's what it's about now. So yeah. I think that is the one rule. If you If you do that to your game... It changes everything. It changes how you want to run the game. It changes how the people want to play the game. And I think that whether the rule was dropped because they wanted to change the motivations, or the people playing third, you know, second, third edition didn't under didn't have that motivation and, and just played it like that from the beginning. I mean, who knows which came first? But yeah, uh, it may have but, been the people that were developing second edition just dropped that stuff uh, or didn't give it the emphasis it needed because they did not understand why it was there. Yeah, and which is the same thing for me because, you know, up until the OSR, I didn't understand. I was angry at uh, encumbrance and, you know, Vancey and spell casting everything. I mean, oh, I was a teenager. I was enjoying second edition, but 
the the vestigial rules from AD and D that supported that sort of gameplay didn't support the type of game I learned, and it didn't support the type of game my friends and I played. But interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Maybe boring. I hope we didn't bore everybody, but the chat is active. I would definitely recommend people, if you're playing D&D, no matter what edition you're playing in, definitely use reaction checks, definitely use morale checks, and strongly consider, uh, I would say definitely use GP for XP, um, but that might have, un. you might have to do some fiddling with some of the core assumptions of the game to get that, to implement that, because in I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that different editions of the game built on different assumptions may make that a little bit trickier to implement. Whereas the first two can be pretty much dropped in as is. I agree. And and I remember when we were talking earlier, there's, there, there's a good reason to use reaction tables, even though you might be playing a standard superhero-style game. It's because it's... It's a good tool for the dungeon master. It saves you time. It saves you brain cycles. You see the result and you go with it. And if and you get to spend your creative cycles on coming up with an interesting uh, reason, an in-game reason, you know, to flesh out your world, to make it seem real. And that's what the morale check does. It fleshes out your world. It makes it seem real. And honestly, I firmly, although although it's it's possibly optional. I believe the gold piece for XP rule, replace monster XP with gold piece for XP, it will make your game world seem more fleshed out and more real. All characters, player characters and monsters, they will all act more rationally. They're not going to fight to the death. They're not going to risk combat when they can get at their cash another way through negotiation or stealth or anything like that. It will make your games more fun and more interesting. I guarantee it. I want to say one more thing. I don't know that was your closing spiel. So. Um, one of the things I said in our original discussion was that coming up with explanations for the reaction tables can make things more interesting. Here's another way to it makes it more interesting. You have a bad guy who has a reason to be inimicable to the party, but who you roll a good reaction roll and it's that he's really, really friendly. And then you have to come up with a reason why that just makes that character, that just makes that villain so much more interesting. If he said, if he, if one of the members of the party looks like his brother or looks like his son or something, he just reminds him of who he was as a kid. If you have ever seen or read Treasure Island. The reason why Long John Silver, who is the villain, he's a bad guy. The reason why he's somewhat empathetic is because he really, really likes Jim Hawkins. He really, really likes this young kid and takes actions against his fellow pirates to protect the kid. So if you can imagine a game where the combat would have gone slash, 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 all the bad guys are dead. Or a game where the party meets the bad guys, they negotiate a bit, get away. When they later come back to combat, the one of the villains, the leader of this group, 
is set upon by his comrades because he actually starts helping out the party. Now, come on. That is just a more interesting game than slash, 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 kill, kill, kill. Just innately a more interesting game because different things happen. You don't have the same thing happen every single encounter. I love that example. It it fired, it connected some synapses in my brain. Now this is half-baked, but bear with me here. Narrative control games are fairly popular in our niche hobby. And they're a response to a need for something like that. Where in the when you play the game, there's a mechanic that says a player can stop play and say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... And then... Would it be cool if we had one of the villains try and help us out? Like, we, you know, he liked what we were doing, and, and he, he was beset upon them. It, I believe that it's possible. It, it, hear me out. Is it possible that those sorts of games are a reaction to the wargaming style, the video game style of games, th to recapture emergent uh, moments that emerged from the raw mechanics of earlier games of D&D in when you and I'll I'll rephrase that in a different way when you play an old school style of game which is the sort of game that I run where I try as best as possible just to be a referee and let the players decisions drive the action I do not have any overarching narrative or anything like that uh, the story emerges from the actions of the players in a typical convention style game or, or, you know, Pathfinder path, you've got a story and the players sort of like theme park ride. They go along for the story and yeah. things happen. Um, and narrative control games are way better than a theme park ride because then the players get to have fun telling a story together. That can be a lot of fun. It's not my cup of tea, but that can be a lot of fun. But if you, the, the, the beauty of using, having the right, dungeon master or the game master and having the right uh, the right set of rules in place, that sort of thing that narrative gamers look to achieve can actually emerge from just the results of applying common sense to a few uh, dice rolls, a few table checks. What do you think? I, I think that you if you can make the game more interesting with implementing one single rule the reaction check, and then, um, you know, taking action on it, actually implementing in your game. Don't just add the rule in, but actually use the rule. And um, if you have to get some advice from people, see how it's being used. There's a lot of OSR discussions on the net, and you can find discussions of that rule. If you can make the game more interesting doing that, that is far, far superior than making the game revamping it so it's no longer a role-playing game. Um that that is a far superior solution because it makes the game better and more robust rather than completely removing the basis for the game. More to think on. Well, at this point, I think we have uh, gone into rambling, but uh, that was really interesting. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we close it up? Nope. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. Uh, that was a lot of fun. 
uh, talked a lot more than I thought we would about uh, just a few simple rules. Uh, thanks to everybody who's listening live. Thanks to everybody who's hanging out in the chat room. I appreciate you hanging out with us tonight. Uh, this has been Geek Gab Game Night, talking about D&D on Thursday, February 1st, 2018. Uh, if you liked what you heard, check us out on SoundCloud on YouTube at youtube.com slash geekgab. Uh, just about any other place where you can find podcasts, you can find us. Just search for Geek Gab. We also have a regular show uh, just called the Geek Gab or Geek Gab Prime that happens on most Saturdays. Uh, so check us out then. We have all sorts of discussions on pop culture, be it books, movies, television, what have you. Uh, once again, uh, I'm your host, Darnell. Uh, Daddy Warpig, thanks for joining us. Good night to everybody and game.